This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. There has never been a forthright accounting of the unfortunate history of residential zoning and its racist legacy. The Better Cities Project is starting to examine zoning and its current effects on various groups through what they call the 1921 Project. I spoke with BCP's Patrick Tui last week. Within the criminal justice context, I hear from people that I know that, well, look, the laws themselves are facially neutral. And the fact that there are disparate outcomes among uh, various races, that's just a product of something else that doesn't have anything to do with the what is actually in the statute. It doesn't say if your skin is this color, you get this penalty, and if your skin is this color, you get this penalty. Within the housing context, we can say something a little more strongly. And we can, I mean, people have that argument in right. the criminal justice context, but within the context of housing and how we designate space for building housing, how we build roads, where yes. those roads are built. Economic development is the same thing. So, so here's the way I put it. Imagine your friends are playing Monopoly and they offer to deal you in halfway through the game. They're not going to discriminate against you, but you're not going to win because all the properties have been bought. And so what's happening is we set up a system years ago that was racist. And even though it is no longer, we have disparate outcomes because of that. And it's everything from the ability to build generational wealth. Uh, we can argue about the solutions. And certainly the left and the right do. But I need people to understand that the claim is legit. For people who read The Color of Law, which is a great book, uh, by Richard Rothstein. Um, if you dig through the archives, the Cato Daily Podcast, you can hear our discussion about that. Um, but this was, among various cities in America, very intentional and defended this racial segregation with respect and using zoning in order to get it done, uh, was defended by, quote unquote, smart people at the time. Absolutely. It was considered to be kind of a technocratic solution uh, to growth. Um, it was a way to, uh, you know, maybe if you assumed that the races weren't going to get along, this was to make sure that uh, you didn't have trouble because you kept them apart. And it was very, very intentional. In, in researching uh, housing and, and zoning segregation, I was shocked to find uh, in a book about zoning in Kansas City that uh, the National Association of Realtor Boards had printed in their code of ethics, I think in the 1920s, that no realtor should willingly allow a minority or immigrant to move into a white neighborhood if it would affect property values. And you might think, I can speak for myself, I might have known that that type of racial view existed back then, but it was still shocking to me to find out that they were so confident in this that they put it in print in their code of ethics. Yeah, Louisville, uh, my hometown, uh went to the U.S. Supreme Court over protective that, covenants to keep uh, black people out of white neighborhoods. Oh, th there are, uh, you know, uh, statements from the mayor of Baltimore at the time, who's very clear. Um, but it isn't just a matter of the North versus the South, for example. It isn't just a matter of white uh, and black. Uh, California, San Francisco, were using police powers to uh, uh, affect Asian, Chinese, Japanese laundries. You know, they passed regulations about safety, but only enforce them against uh, Asian markets. Um, 
during the uh, migration of Southern Blacks to the North uh, that spurred a lot of this panic and zoning, you had even established Blacks in Chicago who were okay with exclusionary zoning because they were looking to protect themselves and their property values against this influx of of poor workers from the South. So it's it's not as simple as saying those are the bad guys. We were all, like, you know, the comic Pogo says, we have found the enemy and he is us. Donald Trump threatened during the campaign of 2020, Joe Biden wants to destroy the suburbs. And I took that as, uh, if not a dog whistle, at least a, and, and first of all, it's a, a bonkers statement. It's fundamentally uh, untrue. Uh, but I took that to be uh, something that would get right at the heart of the matter, which is property values. And that is that for so many homeowners, that's it, that's it. And it's not about being racist. It's not about uh, disliking some group of people. It is about what's going to protect my property values and everything else is subordinate to that. There's an awful lot of truth to that. People uh, who live in the suburbs are very concerned about protecting their property values, about doing things that increase their home value. And that leads to an awful lot of regulation, like exclusionary zoning that says that, you know, on a plot of land, you may only buy a, um, or may only build a single family unit. And again, that drives up prices and people who live in those houses are happy with that. But what we are doing is uh, driving up the cost of home building everywhere, not just in those areas. And we are codifying or, or, or um, further enforcing uh, segregation, kind of lowercase s segregation. And, and the irony is because you're exactly right, an awful lot of, let's say, right of center suburban homeowners um, oppose this or are worried about uh, efforts to increase diversity is what are they doing? They want to use the power of government to protect them against the free market. And even if we remove the rules of exclusionary zoning, government set exclusionary zoning, people will still have gated communities. They'll still have homeowners associations that may require, you know, this many square foot and all that. And that's fine. People are free to act as they choose, but the government should not be coming in and setting exclusionary zoning as the floor. We should, we should get rid of it, open it up and let the market do what markets do, which is make us all wealthier. So as a practical matter, what are the big fat targets with respect to zoning that would have a, uh, big impact in terms of either the price of housing or the ability of groups to commingle in a way that uh, the laws that were put on the books, and in many cases still are on the books, oh, absolutely. to do that. So, you know, the first thing you could do is streamline as much of the regulation as possible um, on building new homes. I think that... Uh, Home Builders Association put out a report in 2018 that said that maybe a third of the cost of uh, home building is uh, federal, state, and local regulation. Now, obviously, you don't want to remove anything that contributes to public safety, but an awful lot of that is simply permit review, uh, you know, public approval that drives out the cost, that increases uncertainty with builders, and, and makes building housing um, less affordable. 
another thing you could do is allow homeowners to do more with their own property, especially in cities. Uh, ADUs or accessory dwelling units are a way that uh, people can, you know, build an apartment on the side of their house for a, a mother or, or maybe to rent out, you know, something over the garage or just something in the backyard. Uh, allow more people to do that. Um, allow people to home share. Lots of cities have these really old laws about the number of people who can reside in the house. Uh, so you can you can remove barriers to construction. You can allow people to do um, what they want with their property. And then a big part of it is getting rid of the government regulation that says that this is how many square feet every unit must be. Um, and they, you know, they can't touch each other. You can't have duplexes or, or triplexes or things like that. Again, that doesn't mean that if you live in a suburban community, there are going to be high rises built next to your house tomorrow. Uh, your neighborhood may not be a worthwhile place for that. And you may, with your neighbors, establish a homeowners uh, association that stops that. But there are plenty of places in the United States where homeowners can't unlock the real value of their parcel because the government restricts uh, the market, what can be done with it. So given the history here uh, that leading progressives at the time were pushing this separation of of races by using residential zoning and uh the fact that own the libs is such a popular theme within <laughs> republican party politics these days uh for for mostly ill um why aren't republicans super on board with smashing this little local uh part of the state I certainly think they should be. I certainly think that when you examine zoning policy in the 20s and 30s as kind of big technocratic progressive government policy, which basically said, well, the social science is settled. We know how to do things and this is what it looks like. You would think that small government conservatives would have no problem uh, smashing it. But, you know, a hundred years later, we have these communities. Uh, we have people really vested in their property value and afraid and and being uh, fear-mongered to about things that might affect that. And so what happens is you you end up in liberal cities with uh, left-of-center groups in, you know, in Seattle and Berkeley, uh, YIMBYs they call themselves, who are adopting conservative, deregulatory government policies um, because they know that it's standing in the way of of not just diversity, but bringing down home prices. And by the way, that's something that everybody can benefit from. Developers, the wealthy, uh, the poor. If you want to reduce the cost of something, build more of it. And government right now has got its hand up to everyone and saying no. Patrick Tui is the policy director at the Better Cities Project. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.